the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Some of you may well remember back in 1992, thankfully one year before I moved to Los Angeles, there were the infamous L.A. riots, also known as the Rodney King riots. Riots occurred in the majority of Los Angeles when four policemen were acquitted of harming and beating a man by the name of Rodney King. This was my first exposure to what is known as looting. People ransacking and destroying storefronts and then going in and stealing everything they could. Probably the destruction by people who are angry, the looting by those who are opportunists. And so the reporters would go into the streets and they would stop people and interview them. Why are you doing what you are doing? Many, of course, would talk about the Rodney King verdict. Others would say, I need diapers and groceries for my babies. And if I, I know if I leave money as I want to, someone will just steal it. So I have no other choice because no one is around to run these shops than to go and take things. The one interview that sticks most in my mind was one man who was running out of a record store, a music store. And just to clarify, for those of you who are teenagers and below, when I or your parents say music store, we're not referring to a store that sells musical instruments. There used to be stores that had various round things that had music on them. Huge stores, rows and rows of them, organized by genre, alphabetically, and we would go in there by CDs or records. And this man was running out of a store with a handful of CDs, armfuls of CDs, fallen out of his arms. And they were all Christian artists. The reporter stopped him and said, why are you doing what you are doing? Why are you stealing Christian music? And the response was straightforward and quite simple. Because I love the Lord, is what he said, <laughs> then ran off. There are many expressions of love for the Lord. However, they all must be directed by the words of Scripture. In the same way, there are many churches filled with many elders. But to be a proper elder in the eyes of God, the man's life and ministry must be directed by the words of Scripture. We have been studying the qualifications for a biblical church elder. We have come to God's list of spiritual qualifications. These would be the necessary components of a man's character for him to even be considered for the role and work of elder in the local church. And there's a lot to unpack here. So we pick up in the middle of the list of these 15 characteristics. We're in verse 3 of 1 Timothy 3. And this morning we will go through verse 5. So turn with me as I read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. 
Paul continues, an overseer must be not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Well, let's jump right in because we're really in the middle of this study, going as far as we can every Sunday morning through this list. The next qualification for the elder is not addicted to wine. Now, often when we read the Bible, we naturally make seemingly logical and even grammatical connections in our minds so that what we are reading in the Scriptures fits into what we understand in our particular culture and our modern language. This is normal. This is good as we seek to understand God's Word, especially as it pertains to us. But there's a reason that we look into the Greek of the New Testament on Sunday mornings. Although doing their very best at a very hard work, Bible translators embark on a very difficult task. There are many reasons for this. And the more accurate that they want to be, the more they want to glorify God, the more difficult the task is because they don't want to get it wrong as they translate into English or French or Chinese, or whatever it may be. Now, the difficulty of this task partly lies in the fact that there are not always direct translations from one language to the next, especially if it is a dead, ancient language. If you speak a foreign language, you know this to be true. Perhaps your friends hear you talking to your mom on the phone, And they say, oh, that greeting that you said as you hung up. I've heard that before. What does that mean? And you can't really think of a direct translation into English. Say, well, it kind of means this, but not really. If you take it literally, it doesn't make sense. But in my culture, it makes sense. And it kind of means this, but also this. Some of you have experienced that. This is even true remaining within the English language when trying to explain to a younger generation what a certain slang word meant in your generation. And I'm taking the time to explain this general principle because of this phrase, addicted to wine. What we automatically tend to think of when we read this is, oh, this is talking about an alcoholic. The problem with this is that in our culture... Someone who was once an alcoholic is always considered an alcoholic until the day they die, regardless of how long it's been since they've had a drink. 30 years, oh, I'm a recovering alcoholic. 50 years, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Five days, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Now, to be sure, someone who is, let's say, an active alcoholic, and right there you see the problem, because there's no proper American term for a recovering or clean alcoholic versus someone who is actively drinking. But someone who is an active alcoholic cannot be an elder. When it comes to eldership, we must be careful even with a recovering alcoholic who is not fully recovered. But again, that's not the whole meaning of this phrase, not addicted to wine. 
The Greek word pictures someone who spends too much time with their alcohol. It literally means someone who sits long at their wine or one who is a slave to drink. Naturally, this often results in drunkenness, which is the telltale disqualifier for any would-be elder. Drunkenness is always pictured as negative in the New Testament. Paul even tells believers to not associate with professing believers who are drunkards, 1 Corinthians 5.11. So first and foremost, someone who gets drunk often or even from time to time is not qualified to be an elder. But speaking of clarity in the Greek, the Greek word for drunkard, alcoholic, is not the word that Paul is using here. So the requirement that he is not addicted to wine does not only mean that he can't be drunk all the time. It also means that this man should not have a reputation as a drinker, to not be in any way controlled by wine. By the way, understand that wine refers to any form of alcohol, drugs as well. So what does it mean to be controlled by alcohol if he is not getting drunk or is not an alcoholic? Well, this goes back to the priority or the overarching priority of the elder, God and his church. Thus, any sort of all-consuming hobby is not to be in the elder's life. Anything that occupies too much of his time and money. Now, some would want to respond to me and say, well, give me a percentage. What percentage of his salary does he spend on this that would be too much? How many hours during the the day that he's awake would be too much? There's no set answer to that, but we all know when someone's hobby is over the top. It's too much. It controls their life. It's not a healthy break. It's an obsession. Their life revolves around it. They have a job so that they can make money to pour in to this hobby. And this can be anything from playing sports, watching sports, collecting sports memorabilia. It can be a pet. It can be travel. It can be video games. It can be Netflix. Anything that habitually takes him away or distracts him from being present with God's people, first and foremost, as we'll see more towards the end of this morning, his family. You get this even in the secular world in your workplace. You are bothered when your boss is always on vacation. He is constantly unreachable because he's working on the car he's restoring or at the golf course. When it comes to alcohol, you have the extra problem of the potential of being drunk, but also the potential of being so obsessed with sampling and collecting that you spend too much money and time even if you never get drunk. Just last night, among other various topics, I had a great conversation with someone whose profession is a master sommelier. And he himself does not even drink because he has seen so many variations of this very problem. Bottom line, the elder cannot be someone who has a reputation as a drinker of alcohol. And even though in our immediate culture in the Bay Area has changed a lot, universally the stigma of drunkenness and alcohol remains. The elder must be careful. The elder must not 
be addicted to wine. As we move on, there's an old English word for a boxer. I know this because I was reading a book years ago, and it had the word pugilist, and I had no idea what that was. It's an old English word for a boxer or a fighter. It's where we get the English word in your NAS Bibles, pugnacious. The elder is not to be pugnacious. Literally, the Greek word means a giver of blows, physical blows. So this is speaking of physical punches, refers to someone who is given to violence. This is not exercise. This is not banning boxing as an exercise. This is talking about someone who's angrily given to violence. In fact, the ESV and NIV translate this word as violent. The elder is not to be violent. And just as the elder is not to be someone who has a reputation as a drinker, he is also not to have a reputation as a brawler. When talking about the deeper issue of the heart, this is someone who keeps his cool. No matter what the situation, he stays in control and avoids physical violence. Even deeper is the attribute of love in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 and 7. Love is patient. And then verse 7, love endures all things. Both of them carrying the idea of being able to remain calm and avoid anger even when offended, even when hurt, even when taken advantage of. The elder is to so love others that he does not fly off the handle even in the midst of persecution from enemies and the ingratitude of friends. He is someone that willingly and readily forgoes his rights for the sake of others. Turn ahead a couple pages to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Talking about those who serve in general, not specifically elders. It says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And we see these attributes that an elder must have to be gentle, to be patient, to, be, to not be quarrelsome, to be kind to all. The overseer is not to be pugnacious. The next characteristic, gentle, is a natural segue from not pugnacious. As I mentioned earlier, one word in the Greek or any foreign language can have several meanings and nuances in the English. This Greek word for gentle can mean gentle. It can mean kind. It can mean tolerant, forbearing, even considerate. What this all means when talking about the elder is that the elder is one who forgives easily. He does not hold a grudge. He does not shepherd his flock under the weight of a constant chip on his shoulder. And when he sees those around him, specifically those in his church, he remembers the good that God has done in them, the good that they themselves have exhibited and practiced, They don't remember the bad, the sin, the mistakes, or the evil. This also involves having an attitude of kindness 
and meekness. In 2 Corinthians 10.1, Christ himself is described as meek and gentle. And so once again, we see that the church's shepherds should emulate the character of the church's chief shepherd. And more than just in Christ's posthumous description, we see Jesus fulfilling the characteristic of gentleness when he was here on earth in the Gospels. Rather than insisting on his rights as God, very God, as a creator of the very men who were persecuting him and killing him, he rose above the injury and injustice at his trial, at the torture, at the desertion, and on the cross. The fulfillment of total gentleness, however, is not seen merely in the fact that he did not call down the angels and have the Jews and the Romans destroyed. In other words, gentleness, perfect gentleness, was not merely exhibited in Jesus Christ by staying silent or just saying at his trial, it is as they say. Being passively non-contentious is only half of what it means to be gentle. The other half is exemplified for us when Jesus, as he died, asked the Father, forgive them. In other words, his gentleness was not just in refusing to destroy them. It was also in proactively serving them by asking the Father to forgive them. See, the fullness of being gentle is not just sitting by and accepting attack. It is also proactively being considerate, showing mercy and love, and even waiving your right to reparations towards those who are attacking. In James 3.17, we saw that godly wisdom is also described with the same word, gentle. So to be sure, the church elder must have that gentle wisdom of God. Now, similar to gentle, the elder's next characteristic is to be peaceable. Similar to not pugnacious, this simply means not a fighter. But this is someone who is not contentious or quarrelsome or aggressive. So it refers to his inner being as well as his words, not so much his fists and his kicks as pugnacious would indicate. So it's about being not argumentative. You have probably met or know someone in your life that they seem to always like to disagree or argue for argument's sake. You say A, they say B, but experience tells you that if you had said A, if you had said B, they would say A. They just want to disagree with everything you say or everything everyone says. This kind of mindset is not just off-putting and childish, it is unbecoming of an elder. But that, the idea of disagreeing with everything, would be the extreme. There are many who are not quarrelsome at every turn, yet have a tendency to be argumentative. Being peaceable involves a heart of humility, not needing to be right all the time, not needing to correct others all the time. Confronting sin, yes. Correcting bad doctrine, absolutely. But not in the little things. Not in starting an argument or debate over every little thing. The location of a monument. 
the name of a restaurant. Struggle with this will most likely mean struggling with other issues, such as impatience, pride, and anger. The elder must be able to swallow his pride and not make mountains out of molehills. The elder must understand which battles to fight, pick their battles. Most of them are not worthy to be fought. And I often hear people quarrel about the most insignificant things. And I walk away thinking, or if it's my kids, I will actually say it to them, who cares? You're getting all worked up about something very, very silly. The color of ketchup. You know, these ridiculous things. I mean, we do things like this. We, we quarrel, especially in our families with our kids. You see the kids doing it. You do this with your spouses. You just have to be right. And I think that most of us as Christians, 10 seconds into that debate or argument, you start thinking, this is absurd. I can't believe I keep having this conversation. Why do I insist on being right in this mundane, insignificant conversation. We like to do that. We like to bicker. We like to quarrel about the most insignificant things. And this is very important. I don't think it's because you want to be right. It's because you want the other person to acknowledge that you're right. Even sometimes in your heart of hearts when you know you're wrong. You just want them to lose. You just want them to give up. The elder recognizes and lives under the weight of a world that is depraved and a church that is engulfed in that world. There is no time, not to mention energy, to be quarrelsome. The overseer is to be peaceable. At the end of verse 3, we have a big one. Free from the love of money. Big because the New Testament and Old Testament is filled with warnings about the love of money. Just as a shepherd is not to be dominated or controlled by alcohol, so he must not be dominated or controlled by money. On the one hand, he is not to be greedy. On the other, he is to be generous. Those two ends of the spectrum which are in reality the same end of the spectrum, are a great reminder that the love of money is not just about trying to get money. It is also trying to keep the money that you already have. In other words, despite the stereotype being the rich, flashy individual, being the one who loves money, the reality is that the cheap and stingy individual is most likely driven by money and a love of money also. It's not just the one who dedicates his life to making money that is condemned in Scripture. Jesus himself says that it is the one who keeps what money he has in storehouses that is the problem. On a very practical level, this keeps the elders of the church who often have say over the church's funds from stealing or even being miserly with charity or blessing the congregation. But, With such a digital trail these days, this is not as much of a problem in our society. Regardless, we must keep the overarching mentality front and center. 
the desire to have or make money should not rule the elder's life. Unfortunately, there is a traditional mindset of churches that their pastors should be poor. I'm thankful that well-taught churches do not believe this way because well-taught churches know what the Scriptures say. But this is still very true in many churches around the world as well as much of America's Bible Belt. Inadvertently then, forcing the pastor to have to be focused on money because the church does not pay him enough to take care of his family or live in a home. However, that being said, even in that situation where that church is clearly in sin, the elder is to be free from the love of money. Wise with his money? Yes. Seeking more money to be able to use it for others? Absolutely. Controlled by money? No. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verses 8 through 10. This really brings out the heart issue of who we are to be as believers as well as elders in particular. 1 Timothy 6, verses 8 through 10. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Could you imagine if this was written by someone in 2024's San Francisco Bay Area? If I can eat out five times a week, if I can look and go to a Michelin star restaurant once a month, if I can take my annual vacation, if I can have many, many coverings for different situations, different colors, Uh, with labels that people will notice. So I fit in. I just want to be a good testimony and fit in with my wealthy co-workers. No. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We know that money is a gift from God. Money, you could say, but very carefully, is a blessing from God because as He desires what's best for you and wants to refine you, poverty can be a blessing from God as well. But we know that money is a gift from God. And in His sovereignty, money is how the world functions. And historically, capitalism has shown to be the most effective economic system. And if you look close enough, capitalism is plastered all over the Scriptures. Money can be a way for Christians to bless others. Money can be a way for Christians to win souls for Christ either through supporting their church missionaries or other evangelistic endeavors and organizations. Money can be a way for Christians to help with their own testimony for Christ. 
Money can be a way for Christians to buy their way into certain social circles for the sake of preaching the gospel to, to those that other people do not have access to. My doctor doesn't want to hear me preach the gospel to him as a patient, but he might readily listen to other doctors. So when I say that money can be a way to buy yourself into a place for the sake of the gospel that the rest of us can't access, this can range from paying for a good education to paying admission to certain dinners or social events. Just be careful that you're doing it for the glory of God. But as Paul says, money can also be a root of all sorts of evil. Not the root, a root, and not all evil, but all sorts of evil. Don't blame money for everything in this world. That's wrong. The elder then must have money. He must earn money. He must try to keep getting money. But all for the sake of God's glory, through stewardship of his family, his physical body and home, supporting the church and Christian workers, and using the money to encourage, provide for, and support others, and even just encouraging other people who are richer than him just to say, want to buy you a meal or a gift. Those of you who give and give liberally, you know there is an indescribable joy in giving. But as much joy as there is in that, the overseer and any Christian needs to be content with what they have, even if in God's plan it means they no longer have extra money to bless others with. We need to be content with what we have. This doesn't mean quit your job. This doesn't mean don't try to go for that promotion or raise. But every cent and every potential cent needs to be filtered through the lens of God's Word. The passage we just read that ends with money being the root of all sorts of evil, or a root, rather, of all sorts of evil, starts with the call to be content. And when you understand this, then you understand that the main issue is not what the money is being used for, but what the driving passion of the elder is. And what I mean is this. There are many people who justify the sin of the love of money and may not even realize it's the love of money because of the end goal, a seemingly good and noble goal. I want my kids and my grandkids to inherit some money. I need to buy a house to host people for ministry. I have a wedding to pay for. And the more people we can bring, the more we'll hear the officiant preach the gospel, the kids' education. The consuming issue for the individual then becomes making and saving money even if it is for a seemingly noble cause, and under the guise of that noble cause, they have fallen into a root of all forms of evil. The elder, 
regardless of the goodness of his intentions, is to trust in the sovereignty of God when it comes to his finances and to make sure that he never falls into a pattern of being controlled by money or the pursuit of it. Let's move on. The final three qualifications for the elder are different in that they are elaborated upon by the Apostle Paul rather than merely listed as a bullet point. We have time to cover the first of these last three. We'll look at the final two next week. In verses 4 and 5, we read this. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Cue my children to have a meltdown right now. This qualification lies in the need for the elder to manage his own household well. And this refers to all in his family, which at that time would include his slaves, with a clear emphasis, as we read, on the overseer's children. As with the qualification of husband of one wife that we saw last week, this does not mean that a man must have children in order to be an elder or that he must have more than one child because of the word children. But... If he does have children, the home is going to be a decisive role in his life to determine if he is fit to be an elder. And the single or childless elder must exhibit qualities that would make him a good father, although admittedly that would be hard to determine until he actually is one. The word manage that Paul uses here means to rule over, to lead, to manage, to preside over, to even govern. And the word grew to encompass the ideas of caring and protecting. So what the elder must exhibit in his home and children is all of the above. Now, there are a few obvious but important points to make here. First, if you look at the passage, Paul refers to the elder's own household. There are many who are good at caring for others, whether they are unrelated or related, such as their grandkids, while their own family is neglected. I personally know one lady, she's not a Christian, who is so involved with her local mom's club, she volunteers, organizes, she runs things incredibly well. It is rare that I meet a mom in that city who does not know this lady. But in so doing, she clearly neglects her own family, her own husband, and her own child. When it comes to the elder, no matter how much he helps others in marriage counseling or parenting advice or caring for the flock, his role as a husband and father, if it is lacking, then he should not be an elder. This is one of the keys. This is, I believe, why Paul elaborates on this one. Because even historically in the Christian church, we see people who do much for the kingdom of God and yet neglect their own families. These heroes of faith, we praise God for them. We learn from them. It's good to read their biographies. But these old missionaries, waving goodbye to their wife and kids on that ship as they left for a year or two, that's not good. Children must be under control 
The household must be managed well. I said there's a couple obvious points. First is the own household. The next obvious but important point to make comes out of the word well. He must manage his own household well. This can be translated excellently, refers to that which is beautiful, that which is appealing. It's seeing how someone fathers, how someone is a good husband, and say, that's good. I like that. I like how he does that. That's encouraging. But when we talk about not just managing his own household, but managing it well, it is not enough that their children are fed, clothed, and warm. Managing well involves biblical management of the home. Fulfilling passages such as Colossians 3.21, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. There are many ways that you can exasperate a child, but one of the primary ones is not being around. Ephesians 6.4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so, the emphasis is not so much on the quality of how he runs his family, although that is a big part of it, but on doing it correctly, that is, biblically. In a few weeks, when we begin our parenting class, by the way, still registration is still open. We have more and more uh, single people or grandparents coming in. We would encourage all of you to join, whether you're married or not, children or not. But in a few weeks when we begin our parenting class, I will tell all the students that successful, God-honoring parenting is about how you parent, not so much the results. It's very similar to evangelism. People beat themselves up because they say, well, I'm not glorifying God through evangelism. So why do you say that? Well, I go out every weekend and evangelize all my coworkers and family members have heard the gospel from me, but no one has accepted Christ. That has nothing to do with God-honoring evangelism because you don't change the heart. God-honoring evangelism is evangelizing. And so God-honoring parenting is parenting biblically and letting God handle the results. Now naturally, naturally, if you parent well, there will be physical, academical, academic, spiritual results. And so in the same way of God is honored in how you do it, the proof that the elder is managing his own household well is not merely seen in children's etiquette, good grades, musical talent, sports ability. And this may be true from the world's perspective, but not God's. Rather, when you see a godly family led by a godly man, there is a spiritual blessing in those children even before coming to faith that is evident. There is joy among the children. There's a desire to please God as much as an unbeliever can. There's a love for the church, a desire to be there. And most of all, the children are under control. Look at the end of verse 4 keeping his children under control with all dignity. Under control, it's a military term referring to when soldiers line up under their ranking officer. Dignity speaks of reverence, seriousness, respectfulness, and holiness. 
We put these together and we understand that children submit to their dad, but they do so out of respect, love, and yes, a touch of fear. There should be a mix of affection, respect, and a bit of awe in the sense that every kid, at least to a certain age, should think to some degree that daddy is Superman. It has been said that to manage their kids well means that the father leads them. This is so good. It's not mine. I'm not praising myself. (laughs) It has been said that to manage their kids well means that the father leads them with a firmness that makes it advisable to obey, with a wisdom that makes it natural to obey. (laughs) This is the best part. And a love that makes it a delight to obey. To manage their kids well means that a father leads them with a firmness that makes it advisable to obey, with a wisdom that makes it natural to obey, and a love that makes it a delight to obey. By the way, elder or not, this should be the goal of every father and mother grandmother and grandfather in this room. But what this means is that the elder's leadership and shepherding abilities are evidenced not just in the fact that his children submit to him, but how that submission is manifested. Not trembling in fear that daddy will get mad, not in mockery because there's no respect for dad's wisdom, not in compulsion because they simply have to, Not in pity, because Father gets sad if they don't. This in turn means that when this is well done, there is a respect for the Father such that the children and spouse are not constantly criticizing or negatively making fun of the man. And it is within the framework of his own family that a man's character is evident. You have heard me say, Perhaps not recently, but something I got from my old college pastor. He used to say, who you are when you're alone is who you are. If you think about that, that's pretty terrifying. How you act with all these wonderful godly people is not who you are. Who you are when you're home alone, when nobody's watching, what you do with your time, what you look at on the internet, what you say in your mind when you're angry, that's who you are. But I think for many, we need to say who you are with your family is who you are. Family, children will push you to the limits of patience and self-control. The godly Christian home then becomes the paradigm, the pattern for the kind of leadership expected of the elder over the church. And the natural conclusion is put forth in Paul's parenthesis in verse 5. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And as as he often does, Paul uses an argument that moves from the lesser to the greater. Don't overinterpret that statement. That simply means that Paul is moving from that which is physically smaller, a family, to that which is larger, a church congregation, and all the intricacies that is involved in shepherding both of those. 
In other words, I am not saying that a man's family is more important than the church or vice versa, such that he can sacrifice his family for the sake of ministry, as again, unfortunately, has been historically promoted and encouraged and praised among pastors and elders in the church globally. He repeats the same sentiment using the word manage, the same Greek word that we saw in verse 4, and then connects it with taking care of the church of God, which means to care for or exercise concern for. Although different words, we see the different nuances of the elder and father's role. These are not two different responsibilities, but two descriptions of the same role, the same person. He is to manage and he is to care for. And although not the main point here, the responsibility of the elder to love and care for the members of the congregation in the same way that he would love and care for his own children becomes abundantly clear. And so, when you take the microcosm of the family and bring it out to the church as a whole, this would involve for the elder nurturing, teaching, counseling, building unity, teaching to forgive, being a peacemaker, instilling love, serving, resolving conflict, teaching others to resolve conflict, all essential to caring for the church and raising children. I want to give a quick aside. One of the questions for small group this week from this passage is going to be directed at the singles, and it is this question. How does the importance of a well-managed household change what kind of person you want to be or what kind of person you want to marry? You say, my household is is under control as much as I can, uh, but my wife, my wife spoils them. She doesn't discipline them. It's not my fault. I do what I can. And as we have seen the strictness and severity of this passage, as mean as it sounds, the answer is simply, well, single men, that shows you why it's so important to choose your wife carefully. Do not just get married to not be lonely. Choose someone who is going to make you a better Christian. Don't find someone, whether you're, whether you're a woman or man, I'm talking to here, both. Don't find someone who everything's happy, I know he sees my faults, but he never confronts my sin. Either get that fixed or find someone else. If iron sharpens iron, why wouldn't you want to be sharpened by the person you wake up with every morning? Choose wisely, my friends. And I understand how difficult that may be, especially as you get older, you desire to have a family, you may realize that Time is ticking. If you don't find someone soon, your desire to have kids, at least out of your own womb, will be impossible. I get it. But be very, very careful. I understand that the situation is different because it's a young church. There's not many Christians. But when I was overseas on the mission field, I saw the most passionate, 
and bold of Christians disappear from the church because her desire to get married was so strong that she married a Muslim man. Be careful. Back to the text. The rhetorical question that is posed by Paul in this verse is asked such that a negative answer is expected. The logical flow is simple. If he can't handle a few people that he spends the most time with and is most involved with, how will he handle a church filled with people who have differing experiences, family life, or not under his authority 24-7? Answer, he won't and he can't. If your house is a mess, why would I ask you to house it mine? If you starved your dog to death, why would I have you manage a pet store? If you ran your one franchise into bankruptcy, why would corporate make you a board member of the whole company? And if your children are disobedient and your family life is chaotic, why would God want you to take care of his children and his family? Answer, he wouldn't. And he doesn't. Well, we've come to the end of time. We'll look at the last two next week. An overseer must be not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have not only called your people to a high standard, you have called us to a superhuman standard because it is only possible by your strength. And I pray that in all of these characteristics, it would not just be sought out by those who are elders or desire to be elders but that it would be sought out by all of us in this congregation. And I pray, Father, for the churches around the country and around the world who have the Word of God in their hands and yet allow unqualified men and women to be elders, to rule the church, to change the role so that there's elders and then there's a separate board. All of this nonsense, Lord, bring your church back to a proper understanding of your God-ordained structure and requirements. And may we continue to seek that, pursue that, and adhere to that here at Grace Church. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we close. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.